first scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 16 to 24. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The word of the Lord. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and those skilled at lamentation to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light? and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being from your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In her recent memoir, Call It Grace, Dr. Serene Jones, the president of Union Seminary in New York, describes her family life growing up 
in Oklahoma. Her white grandfather's closest fishing buddy was Senator Melvin Porter, who in 1964 became the first African-American elected to the Oklahoma State Senate. And their interracial friendship was remarkable for its time. Jones recalls a fishing trip she attended with the two of them as a young girl and how lighthearted and carefree their banter was and how deep their conversations were throughout the whole day long, even though they never caught a single fish. Publicly, her grandfather was a proud champion of Senator Porter's Anti-Discrimination Act, which was Oklahoma's state equivalent to the Civil Rights Act. Jones remembers her grandfather as a brilliant litigator and judge, a student of scripture, and a well-spoken community leader. And yet Jones also remembers her grandfather out of the public eye, behind closed doors where he would tell crude sexist jokes and speak despairingly of the black community. When he was at home, she writes, he used racist language like it was part of the regular everyday normal speech. I didn't know how his fishing boat self could live right next to his hateful racist self. You see, Jones's public grandfather had a certain well-curated persona, while his private self remained mired in the abyss of America's signature injustice, racism. Jones comes to understand how these two drastically different selves that she observed in her grandfather could exist in the same person through the lens of the theology of none other than John Calvin. For Calvin, there exists in the human person simultaneously the co-realities of sinner and saint. On the one hand, humans bear what Calvin calls the seed of divinity, and possess the capacity to shine with the very glory of the God who created all things and all of us. On the other hand, however, sin's grip on humanity poisons us, even to our very core. Sin, to quote a classically John Calvin sentence, spews forth ever new flames of depravity. The sinner and saint within us constantly wrestle for control and we find ourselves prone to faithfulness in one moment and faithlessness in the next. Sinner and saint exist simultaneously not only in individuals but also in society. Even our most saintly social endeavors such as the criminal justice system are tainted with our collective sin insofar as they are biased and unfair. Economic systems designed for collective prosperity still exploit and marginalize some. The struggle between sinner and saint is a constant in both our individual and our communal lives, and it's a lens through which to understand the shocking proximity of virtue and vice in the same person or the same society. The prophet Amos decries the coexistence of sinner and saint 
within the religious life of his community. Lulled into complacency by the rising standard of living of his day, Amos observed a religion that had become more show than substance. Worship in the temple was elaborate and ornate, but it didn't seem to be transforming hearts, sets because injustice was rampant in society. The comfortable turned a blind eye to the suffering around them. Things seemed saintly and right in public worship, but in society, sin prevailed. Unlike most of the prophets we've encountered so far in our summer series, Amos lived in a relatively peaceful and carefree time. He prophesied during the 8th century BC, during the long and prosperous reign of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in those days, the kingdom of Syria was declining, and the kingdom of, and of, the kingdom of Assyria had yet to ascend, which gave Jeroboam II a great opening to expand his nation and increase trade and accumulate wealth. Throughout the book, Amos reveals that people of means in his day enjoyed summer and winter homes, ivory-adorned beds, bottomless wine. They planted pleasant vineyards and beautified themselves with perfume and moved from feast to feast. Their standard of living was high and their fear of repercussion low. Meanwhile, the poor were afflicted, exploited, and even sold into slavery. The judicial system was corrupt and injustice widespread. Still in all, the people came to the temple in mass, eager to spend their discretionary income to offer sacrifices to God, which they figured would ensure that the good times would continue to roll. Best of all, the people came to worship God under the assumption that a day of vindication was drawing near when God would annihilate their enemies and bring to completion their own prosperity. The people looked forward to this day of the Lord with ease and eagerness, thinking that even the hardships they did endure would soon be no more. But into the midst of this complacent and cyberritic society, Amos launches an all-out verbal assault on a people who had allowed their inner sinner to pin their inner saint to the ground. First, speaking for God, Amos castigates the people for being excited about the coming day of the Lord. They think that God will come to judge their enemies, but Amos says that God will come to judge them because God's own people had become enemies to God's will. On account of their injustice, Amos says, the day of the Lord will be a day not of light, but of darkness. Then Amos declares that God has even come to hate their worship, reject their most lavish offerings, and cringe at their beautiful music. God loathed the way that people came to worship looking like the saintly faithful and acting like they love God, only to then return to their everyday lives and ignore God's desire for justice and righteousness in society. Amos says that what God really wants 
even more than beautiful worship and generous offerings, is a just and righteous world. God wants the saint to be at the wheel of our lives, not only during worship, but in between services. What God really wants is equity and fairness for hungry mouths to eat and dehumanization to cease. What God really wants is congruity between our public life of worship and the integrity we bring to the rest of our lives. Let justice roll down like waters, God demands, and righteousness like an ever-ending stream. Nothing dries up the waters of justice, quite like being on top, quite like having privilege and being in power. If justice for ourselves is achieved and we're in good standing, if we're doing all right, then justice for others can become a sort of bonus, an extracurricular elective appealing insofar as time allows. The more comfortable we feel, the more easily we can set aside the uncomfortable things that God demands God's worshipers do. Now, when times are tough, we might respond with urgency to bring about change and make things happen. With little margin for error, we might relate to those who struggle because the plight of the poor hits just a little closer to home. The scrappy saint in us prevails over the scapegoating sinner whenever compassion gains an upper hand. But when times are good, the slothful sinner in us is likely to tell the striving saint to put our feet up for a while, take our foot off the gas. Other people are responsible for themselves, after all. We can lend a hand to the cause of justice, but it's not ultimately our battle to fight. And so the waters of justice abate to a more manageable trickle. But Amos's image of rolling waters conveys the urgency that the cause of justice should evoke. If you've ever stood beneath a waterfall, then you know the sense of pressure it imposes, right? It weighs on you. It rings in your ears. Rolling waters are no lazy river floating along. A current is in a rush to get to where it's going. Rapids leave no room for equivocation. They flow with conviction. So it should be with the cause of justice. Now, it's not that prosperity and privilege make us altogether indifferent to the problem of injustice. It's just that justice becomes a less urgent priority than it ought to be. Social power enables us to put off the cause of justice until a better time. It enables us to watch the nightly news and then sleep well at night. But there's an inevitable tension in the pursuit of justice that we prefer to avoid if we happen to be in a position that enables us to avoid it. Amos wants to close that back door by which the upwardly mobile can flee the urgency of justice. God wants the time for justice always to be now. In his remarkably compelling letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. confronts the lack of urgency for the cause of racial justice he observed among white clergy 
during the Civil Rights Movement. King laments the white moderate who, quote, prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly advises to wait until a more convenient season. King goes on to ask, was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, King writes, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. The otherworldly religion that King decries recalls those worshipers in Amos's day who longed for the coming day of the Lord and escape from this world. And the claim that justice is, quote, a social issue which the gospel has nothing to do with is a parallel to those devout worshipers of Amos day who despite their religiosity did not hesitate to sell the needy for a pair of sandals, as Amos says elsewhere. To worship God one day and stand indifferent to injustice the next is an altogether contradiction in terms, as far as Amos is concerned. But friends, it's not uncommon today to hear the claim that the gospel has nothing to do with social issues. Too many folks want to come to church and hear a comforting message about the coming day of the Lord rather than a message that confronts the complacent sinner in us with the saint we are called to be in Jesus Christ. Too often we prefer the melody of our harps to the rolling waters of God's justice. And to be honest, as a preacher... I would rather produce an otherworldly message every week and steer clear of the flames of injustice. As someone in the worship business, so to speak, the fifth chapter of Amos does not make me feel good at all. It does not make me excited to preach. And as a white man, I have an easier exit path than most from passages like these, which I could come to and say, I'll preach this one another time. But even in the midst of this stressful struggle between sinner and saints within ourselves and within our world, the good news is that we serve a God of justice who will not leave us to doze off in complicity, who will not let us off the hook. We serve a God who not only sent prophets to shake us from our, our slumber, but who took on flesh and blood in Jesus Christ to take up the cause of the poor and the oppressed. We serve a God whose spirit grafts us into Christ, making us most fully ourselves when we take up the cross and follow after our Savior. The good news is that when we step into the ever-flowing current of God's justice and righteousness, it sweeps us along. It carries us off our feet. 
There is grace when the sinner rears its head and power when the saint takes the reins and dares to step into the tensions of our communal life as a society and as a country to seek justice and righteousness. The God of abundance makes justice possible. And when we seek justice, when we love kindness and walk humbly with our God, our offerings do please God. The melody of our songs does glorify God. And we can indeed look forward to the coming day of the Lord when Christ comes in power and at last establishes justice upon the earth in all its fullness. Friends, the more we have, the more entitled we might feel to an easy life. But an easy life is not the good life. The good life is walking in the light of Jesus Christ, who confronts the powers of darkness and takes up the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The good life is found when our communal worship is congruent with the secret murmurings of our hearts, when our public and private selves both surrender to the will of the God we know in Jesus Christ. So my prayer today is that our weekly worship would commit us to the cause of justice in the world, to the cause of the kingdom of God. And my prayer is that we would find both grace and strength for the journey, that when the Lord comes and justice reigns, we may be found blameless before the throne of grace. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.